that's probably the number one learning is we're having to, to connect with our customers in a very different way and with different parts of their functional organizations in order to move these forward. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT connected devices in the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today we're joined by Michael Sinski, chairman of Pearson Packaging. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics and something we've talked about before, robotics as a service. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So for folks that don't know, give us a little background on Pearson. Well, Pearson Packaging Systems is a capital equipment manufacturer that specializes in the design, manufacture, and commissioning and service of, of secondary packaging equipment. So case erectors, robotic case packers, case sealers, and robotic palletizers. Uh, we are headquartered in, in Spokane, Washington. And, and we really had our roots, you know, in 1955, kind of in the beverage industry, specifically the brewing industry. The founder of the company, Lefty Pearson, uh, was a bottle shop superintendent, you know, here at a, a regional brewery called Bohemian and Brewery. And he came up with a concept to automate the process of erecting six-pack carriers. And that's how the company was born. And, and since then, we've, we've expanded quite a bit, especially over the last 20 years, and, and have kind of, you know, that's not nearly as big a part of our business as it used to be, but that's kind of where we started and who we are today. And you've been in the CEO role for 16 years, give or take? Yeah, roughly, I think since about 2004, 2005, somewhere in that time frame. I can always tell when I have a CEO on the show that's been in the big chair for a dozen plus years because the overviews are always so crisp. You know, you can tell yeah. that they've given this, you know, two or three thousand times. So your arc is very interesting. You've been with the company for 25 years, something like that, since the late 90s. You go through your website and you look at some of the materials, you familiarize yourself with Pearson and a story of like, a very interesting story of, I don't know, cutting edge development starts to emerge. You guys are doing some really cool things in the robotic space. What did life look like in 97? I mean, can you talk about the arc from the company you joined then to now? And, and how did you guys emerge at this place? Is this similar to 97? Or have you guys had to go through some big story arcs to get there? No, yeah, we really changed dramatically. I mean, I think we were a very successful, very well-known company when I joined the company in, in the late 90s. But we were very traditional in serving, you know, kind of some very small markets, right? Or, or I shouldn't say small markets, but some very specific markets. And I don't know that the business model was really going to be, well, I, you know, I, when I looked at it, I didn't think that the business model was really going to be sustainable for the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years. I think we were very traditional in a lot of respects. I think the equipment that we were providing was was of the highest quality, but increasingly customer needs, you could see them changing to demand greater flexibility, you know, even higher levels of reliability. And frankly, the product line that we had at, at that point in time wasn't very well suited for where I think we wanted to take the company and to just build a very sustainable, durable, and successful company that could be around you know, to, to serve customers for decades to come. One of the stories that is uh, a common theme when we have CEOs on the show and, and other CEOs that I meet 
along the way is when they're not the founding CEO, there's often a period of refocusing immediately after they become CEO. A lot of product lines don't make it. You know, the CEO says, listen, we're going to cut this, this, and this. We're getting back to basics. A lot of times that is the impetus for putting a new CEO in the first place. You know, as they say, it's time to get focused, time to get back to basics. What did it look like for you? I could see you, uh, for those, for folks that don't have a video feed, you know, Michael is, is nodding his head. This sounds like this resonates. What did it look like for you in the early days as CEO? Well, I think when, when, when I joined Pearson, I think we kind of were, again, we served some niche markets and we were really kind of focused on kind of several kind of, of very specific customers. And we were really willing to do a wide variety of things. We were kind of everything to, to those particular customers. So we were focused kind of on a small segment of the marketplace. And we were really willing to do a lot of very customized and custom equipment to meet their specific needs. And we had really kind of gotten away, I think, from what, what our core competencies were. So one of the first things that I did is really sat down with the team and did a very open and honest assessment of, hey, what are we really good at? Where do we create the most value for our customers and for the marketplace? And let's really focus on that. Let's really kind of focus on our core competencies and expand beyond our existing customer base. And instead of trying to be everything to everybody, let's you know really focus on case erecting, case packing, case sealing, and, and later it evolved to robotic palletizing as well. But let's really focus on that and try to really penetrate kind of those markets with a broader customer base. And, and it really, it was really, I think, a, a cultural struggle for the company at that point in time. We had kind of become a custom shop and we're doing kind of almost a lot of what you'd call science projects for very, very good customers, many of which we still have to this day. But, but again, we were kind of straying off, you know, straying away from what we were really good at and where we created the most value. So that was the first thing that we did. For folks out there, you know, that have been tasked with rolling out a technology and it hasn't worked out, you know, they're listening to the show and they're thinking, my God, I just had a terrible week. What's an example of a thing that you guys have rolled out that hasn't worked out, you know, in the technology arena, something that you said, listen, we're going to place a bet here. Nobody bats a thousand. Was there one for Pearson that you said, we're doing this, you did it, and you, you just needed to, to later roll it back because it didn't work out? Yeah, I mean, so are you talking like in, in kind of, it, you know, since that focus on core competency or, or prior to that? Yeah, so in the post-core competency world, you know, what's an example of a bet that you placed that didn't go your way? You guys have made a lot of tremendously successful ones. Was there one that didn't go your way? Yeah, you know, we started looking at, you know, very specific times of common footprint tray forming that was very, very big, you know, a decade ago, probably still is very big in the produce industry. And we really, you know, set about trying to develop kind of a pretty robust product offering around those, you know, of, of common footprint tray formers. And honestly, we built some pretty good equipment. But at the end of the day, we really didn't, you know, necessarily understand the market as well as some of the people that had been serving it for quite some time. And while we had, you know, a successful product line, it never really blossomed into what we thought it could have been. And, and again, I think we just kind of stepped out of that core competency a little bit. And it wasn't that we weren't capable. It was just the DNA of the company and the people that we had within the company 
that wasn't their, you know, kind of their absolute area of expertise. And when we looked at some of our competitors in that space, both, you know, domestic and abroad, you know, we, we struggled more and, and that product line kind of slowly was, was phased out. It's interesting, you know, longtime listeners recall I'm a huge believer in product market fit, something I evangelize, I think, not very controversially. A lot of tech folks are big believers. But one of the things that's kind of occurring to me lately is that a very solid understanding of your market and your customers' needs is a really underappreciated competitive advantage, almost to the point of being a moat. You know, as an organization, not as just the CEO, but the organization, when they really understand their customers and their needs in the marketplace, it's a sneaky, valuable thing. And it sounds like what you're saying is, hey, you guys kind of migrated out of that into a space you didn't quite know as well. Some folks that knew it a little bit better had the inside lane on it, and it didn't work out in the end. I mean, is that basically kind of your take? Yeah, in that particular case, yes. And, and I think we've really switched to be being much more customer focused. So when we embark upon launching a new product line or, or, or evolving those core competencies that I talked about, you know, engaging a new product development, instead of letting that really be engineering driven, right, the idea of having like product management, you know, product managers that follow a very disciplined process to really, truly understand the needs of the customer, not only, you know, the needs, what they've historically been, what they are currently, and where they're likely to go in the future, and then really create kind of a functional specification or a product requirements document that reflects that deep understanding of the customer, and then turning that over to engineering as opposed to really allowing engineering to kind of develop a product that they think meets the market requirements, kind of in a vacuum. And, and so we, we, it was at that point that we really pivoted toward a much stronger product management discipline within the company to guide the decisions we were making in terms of both product development and acquisition strategy, things like that. One of the things that I know is a shared passion for you and I is this idea of robotics as a service, and I, which I think is just a fascinating concept, this idea for folks out there that aren't familiar with it, it's the idea that you don't sell a robot, you sell an outcome, and that the robot satisfies that outcome, and so you're, you're charging for the outcome, not for the robot itself. Talk about the evolution that you, you've seen at Pearson towards that. Where does that live? Is that the only offering you guys have? Is that one of several? How do you guys think of robotics as a service, and how does it nest more broadly into Pearson's approach? Yeah, you know, the first thing is, you know, whether it's robotics as a service, machines as a service, because we also, you know, sell traditional machines, you know, as well that don't involve robotic technology. But the idea really, and it's still a very small part of our business and, and, and very slowly growing. Historically, our industry has has been focused on, you know, kind of the traditional capital expenditure model, right? That a customer has funding to automate and, and improve certain business processes, they invest in automation. Let's say you know they, they purchase uh, pieces, individual pieces of equipment or systems to automate those processes to package their products. In our case, and what we noticed was that there were a lot of customers. No matter how successful customers are, and how much cash and how strong their balance sheets are, there's almost always a finite amount of capital available for investment in automation. And we noticed that a lot of customers weren't able to necessarily automate processes that otherwise would have been very accretive to their bottom lines and to their shareholders. 
And it was because, you know, that they had run into kind of, you know, a dead end in terms of they, they had extinguished all the capital they had available. And, and the idea really kind of came to us, you know, from the software industry of, you know, can we act instead of focusing on selling them uh, pieces of equipment that they then have to install, you know, we install them, we commission them, they, we get them up and running. And over a period of time, they reach a simple payback and, and a certain internal rate of return. It's like, why can't we provide that equipment to them at no charge up front? And instead of of charging them and, and them buying and owning the equipment, let's provide them the solution that meets their needs and they can pay for it uh, iteratively. They can pay for it kind of as each outcome is, is essentially, you know, successfully, you know, is successful, right? So per case, like for every case erected, for every case packed, for every case sealed, for every case palletized, whatever it might be that we agree on, they're paying for that outcome. They're paying for the output instead of the equipment. And, and again, it's something that, that honestly, it's been hard to convey uh, and change. It's been hard, I guess, to win hearts and minds in the industry. And we've had success with it, but it's, it's slow and steady and we're committed to it over the long run. But it's been something that, again, is very different than what our industry, how our industry has functioned in the past. So we really noticed that the market is, is a little bit slow to adopt it. And it's not that they're against it. It's just they've never purchased equipment from OEMs like Pearson in that way before. And so we're having to, you know, have deeper conversations with different people in the organizations that we serve than we normally have had. But it's it's slowly but surely gaining, uh, I would say, momentum. And I think five to 10 years down the road, there will be, you know, a significant percentage of our equipment and other OEMs equipment sold that way. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the equipment that was purchased in any year year or that was implemented in any year actually was as a service, you know, and following that model. So for folks out there that are, you know, running a, a company similar to Pearson, they make machinery, they make robotic equipment, they do not sell it currently as a service. What lessons learned can you share that would be helpful to them? How would they know potentially if this is right for them or not right for them? I know it's early days, relatively early days for you guys, but you know, what are, can you share any early learnings? They you go, know, hey, here's a green flag, here's a red flag, lessons learned, scar tissue, et cetera. The first thing that I would say, what we've, what we've really learned is that there's a lot of interest in it from the people that we traditionally engage with. So plant managers, uh, packaging engineers, I mean, you name it, the, the traditional people that we're interacting with that are automating processes. So we get a lot of interest. But what we've learned is when it then comes down to kind of, of inking an agreement to not purchase the equipment in the traditional CapEx model, but to go down this as a service model where they're paying for that output, a lot of people, they don't know if they're authorized to do that, honestly. They've never done it before. And so they're having to actually find people within their organizations and finance and upper management to say, hey, we've got this new approach that we're very interested in. It would allow us to automate some processes that otherwise we wouldn't be automating. Can we do this? Uh, you know, and, and if so, who do we need to talk to? So we're having to navigate and help the customers navigate, in many cases, their own organizations to find decision makers and finance and operations that, that maybe traditionally we didn't have to engage with in order to really explain the technology behind the as-a-service model, how it works, 
And then they have to make some internal decisions about whether or not that's something they want to engage in. And many of those customers said, hey, we really like the idea, but we need to be careful about this because once we accept this from you, that could open up really a Pandora's box. And we might, it might be a slippery slope and we might find ourselves, you know, not prepared, you know, to go down that path with other OEMs. Uh, we could lose control of it, you know, maybe. And so, so that, that's probably the number one learning is we're having to, to connect with our customers in a very different way and with different parts of their functional organizations in order to move these forward. It's interesting. There's several, you know, we don't talk a lot about sales on this show. It's pretty out of scope, but one of the like cardinal sins of sales is don't give your customer homework. And it feels like when you're changing the model and SaaS changed the model years ago, you know, it used to be you bought software and you owned it, then it was as a service. It sounds like you guys have experienced some lumps along the way in needing to educate your customers. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's just a, some some customers just aren't really you know, very familiar with the model, period, in any industry. Some are in the software industry or some other tangential industries, but but most of them have never done it kind of, you know, as it relates to end-of-line packaging equipment or even packaging equipment of any type, primary or secondary. And so, yeah, it definitely, our sales team, and, and we're still refining this, has had to really educate our customers and go into those interactions, understanding that they're going to have to do a lot more educating again and not leaving our customers with a lot of homework. Some of it's a little inevitable, right? When you're bringing them a new model, but we've had to do, uh, you know, kind of pick up the slack there and, and take responsibility for really helping them understand it. And it's a completely new model, like I said, for a lot of them, and that's just more time-consuming than we initially thought it would be. Um, is it something that we can't overcome? Not at all, right? But this is, we're committed to this model, you know, a year, three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And, and, and we think it's going to be a successful part of our business, but it's going to take quite a bit of work. And, and, and I always tell our team, you know, like, you know, nothing worth doing is easy, right? And so that you, you're going to get that initial pushback but we can't give up, right? If it's the right thing to do, and we've seen it work so well in some other areas, there's no reason why it can't be successful here. And there's no reason why we can't help. We can't create a tremendous amount of value for our customers that, that otherwise wouldn't be created unless we followed this model. So we really are committed to it. I want to make sure you understand this. We don't want 100% of our business to go this route. If that's the way it turns out, great. But we really think that, again, five, 10 years down the road, maybe 10, 15, 20% of the business will, will kind of go down this path. You know, who knows? It might have faster adoption than that. But this is just another offering in addition to the traditional CapEx. It's not instead of CapEx. It's something that if the CapEx funds aren't available, we make this available to customers to help them implement that automation that, that they so desperately need. So it's not an either or, it's, it's and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's allowing the customer to find the thing that suits their needs. I think the software world started where you are and then even Microsoft now, you know, like Microsoft Office is as a service. And, and so Salesforce pioneered, so, so, you can't buy certain software, most software, you cannot purchase it now. It's all gone SaaS. So it'll be very interesting to see how robotics plays out. Talk to me about the wrong side of impossible. This is something I ask every CEO about this idea that you don't have a company if you haven't solved, you know, a couple of things 
that nobody else has solved before, or you've done them cheaply, more cheaply, or or you know, better mousetrap, et cetera. What are some things that Pearson, when you were looking at the world in 2003, when you took over, or you know, subsequently, and you said, "Look, guys, we're going to have to solve this and this and this," you know, or or we're not going to be a part of the next 50 years of this story. You know, what were some of those things for you guys? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would say, and if I'm on the wrong tangent, just just kind of rein me back in here. But the first thing was really understanding the voice of the customer and what customers need. You know, instead of develop, instead of allowing engineering to develop the coolest equipment that customers would never buy, it's how do you really understand their needs and focus the entire development of the equipment from the ground up to meet those current and anticipated future needs. That was the first thing. I think a lot. we were very insular from an engineering perspective back then, and we wanted to develop equipment the way we wanted to develop it. And we always used to say this, and we developed it kind of for the wrong people. A lot of times our engineers, and they're wonderful people, and they were back then, but they would develop equipment almost as if other engineers were going to be operating it. And if you've ever been to any of our customers' facilities, that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It's a much more diverse workforce than, you know, degreed engineers designing equipment. And, and so we really needed to make sure that we put the customer and their needs, both current and future, kind of front of mind. And so that was one thing. The other thing that kind of came out of that was, you know, I used the example of if you look at a ketchup bottle, right? Probably for 50 or 60 years, the ketchup bottles, they all look the same, right? They same general shape, same dimension, same number of ounces in it. It really, it didn't, it hadn't changed in a long time. And then over the course of just a few years, it went to a plastic bottle. It went to kind of, you know, that was kind of shaped like the original ketchup bottle. And then it went to the short squat one that fit upside down. And what we learned is that, you know, our customers and their marketing departments we're trying to create kind of more convenience, right, for customers in the right formats uh, and in the right volumes, you know. And, and as a result, the equipment that we used to build very often, it didn't have to be that flexible. You could design it for one or two or three different SKUs, different products, and it didn't have to have a lot of flexibility. The customer didn't have to change the equipment over multiple times. Uh, I mean, we had some customers that didn't change machines over ever during the course of a year. Now we've got customers that change over five, six, seven, eight, nine times in a shift or even more in some cases. And so one of the things is, is what technology can we use and how can we design solutions that are going to be flexible so that they, that even though we might not know what customers need a year or two down the road, that we've designed the equipment in a way where we've used a certain type of technology like robotics that can be retooled reprogrammed, redeployed to meet their future needs. That was really one of the big things that got us, you know, know, that really sent us down the path of robotics as an example. And it was the flexibility and reliability that customers really were increasingly needing. A big part of you guys' story, you hear this over and over, is I'm resisting the urge to poke at engineers here. Engineers generally, I think, you know, they love to engineer. And they, the voice of the customer is not always represented if it doesn't have to be. I think there can be in engineering-driven cultures where the voice of the customer is not well represented. You know, folks sometimes want to go build things that can be built to prove that they can be. 
you know, whether or not that's actually valuable in the marketplace. You hear this repeated theme at Pearson of, you know, the voice of the customer, product-driven decisions and, and things like that. You poke around the website, you see a company that's come a long way extremely cool. I encourage audience, take a look at what these folks are doing. It's really, really, if you're into robotics, it's really cool stuff. What's next for you guys? You know, we're recording this, we're sitting here, basically fourth quarter, 2022. Give us a sneak peek into 2324. What's on your mind? Where are you taking things? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of things. We have traditional product lines, right? Like case erectors and case sealers, you know, that aren't robotic in nature. You know, there's some robotic options, you know, maybe, but, you know, we're, we're really going to be revamping and modernizing kind of that entire case erector product line. And we're, we're about to launch an entire new family of case erectors that are traditional case erectors, right? Non-robotic technology. And again, the focus is on ease of access, ease of maintenance, fewer moving parts, right? Higher reliability, you know, easier for operators and maintenance personnel to interact with and troubleshoot and operate. So a lot of that like ease of use and, and making sure that user-centric design is, is very, you know, how, how people interact with the equipment, you know, how easy is it to, to change over? How easy is it to clear a jam? You know, really improving the accessibility of that equipment so that, that operators don't have to have years and years of experience operating the machine to be successful with it, but it's more intuitive from the very beginning. So you can put an inexperienced operator in front of that machine or that system and it, you know, be able to figure it out, right? Be able to operate it the way we, again, I, we look at consumer electronic devices like an iPhone, right? You can hand that to a two-year-old and the two-year-old in just very few minutes can figure out how to use it and operate it and navigate the device without even being able to read and so it's that kind of thing. The other thing that is, is much more is using robotic technology really wherever possible as a means of improving reliability, but also future flexibility to meet customers' needs. So much more emphasis on, on hybrid solutions that might be a hybrid of robotic technology, of, of traditional technology with robots performing some functions. You know, we look at, at like AI-driven vision. So uh, a lot of our customers have, there's a lot of variability in their product lines, right? Think of online commerce, or I mean, just think of any industry really, but online commerce where you have a lot of like, if you're packing products into a case, there's a lot of variability between the products that are going into case A and case B. And how can you leverage technology in order to make that happen? Because right now, the vast majority of that is being done with manual labor, right? Human beings are incredible in their ability to deal with a variable environment. And how can we leverage robotic technology and vision systems, right, and machine learning to really create, you know, a very a machine that's capable of dealing with a tremendous amount of variability that's very, very flexible and very, very reliable. A lot of things like that are, are really coming down the path. You know, we're doing them currently, but much more of an emphasis in 2023, 2024 and beyond. I would say most humans are incredible in a variable environment. My mother handles variation to her schedule worse than anyone I've ever met in the world. But you're right, you know, compared with robotics, I have Roombas in my house, you know, they're amazing until they encounter an iPhone cord, you know, and then it's game over. Right. So speaking of Roomba and companies that are not Pearson or Vary, who are some companies that you see in your space that you think not enough folks are talking about? 
Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. We've got a couple of suppliers, like I think, you know, AI-driven vision, guiding robots. Companies like Plus One Robotics are doing phenomenal work kind of in our space and are, are whether it's case packing or palletizing, are really allowing us to automate processes that, again, just, you know, traditional technologies weren't able to automate or not cost-effectively automate maybe even two or three years ago. So Plus One Robotics is a big deal. We're really thrilled with what we see going on at Rockwell Automation with their individual cart technology. So their iTrack and their Magnamotion product lines, especially for product handling and being able to adapt to variable product kind of rates and distribution of products like coming to our case packers or our palletizers, really being able to give us a tremendous amount of control, uh, you know, in, in highly variable environments of their products. So I'd say Plus One Robotics I would say, obviously, Rockwell Automation again. And then I would just say that, you know, that really a lot of companies like Fanuc with their zero downtime kind of of product offerings or service offerings. And again, just providing robots that are capable of higher speeds, higher payloads, greater reliability, and can frankly be, be deployed in many more environments than they previously were able to be deployed. You know, those are three companies that we really enjoy working with a lot and are helping kind of take us down kind of that road, you know, into the future. And and they're doing a great job. You've mentioned uh, Rockwell Automation a couple times to me in our previous calls. Rockwell Automation has got to be the rolling stones of IoT. You know, they've been <laughs> around forever and they're still doing amazing things. And you just sometimes it's amazing to think how long they've been around. I mean, Rockwell Automation, which I think used to be just a subsidiary of Rockwell, but I'm not sure Rockwell itself is around. I think Rockwell Automation outlived, I believe, the parent company. I'm not sure if that's the story there exactly, but... Yeah, I, th- I think so, but it's, it's there's all sorts of things they used to be into. <laughs> Like aviation, you know, and I think yep. Boeing bought up a big piece of them, and but Rockwell Automation just keeps on trucking. And you're right, you know, we hear them a lot from folks on the show doing good work. So yeah, that's a great list. And Michael, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. And thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet with another IoT executive and talk about what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.